Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Hello and welcome to a very special FT Money roundtable discussion on emerging markets. I'm Elaine Moore from the Financial Times and joining me today are three expert commentators who will be discussing emerging and developed markets from the private investor's point of view. Joining me today are Tim Bond, investment strategist at OD Asset Management. Hello. James Dowie, chief economist at Neptune. Hello. And Jerome Booth, research manager at Ashmore Investment Management. Hello. Emerging markets remain extremely popular with private investors, despite a rocky year in 2011. Recent research from one private bank found that nearly one in five clients plan to increase their exposure to emerging markets over the next six months. So much so that some of the best-known funds are being soft-closed to dissuade new investors from putting more money in. If we cast our minds back to the FT's last Emerging Market Roundtable in 2010, which James and Tim, you took part in, the mood towards economic and equity growth in emerging markets was pretty bullish then, but a lot has changed in the meantime. Tim, if I can start with you, are you still feeling confident about the prospects for emerging markets? I'm fairly constructive of equity markets generally, because I feel that once we're through these wobbles in Europe, you know, the growth prospects are, are, are reasonably good and probably just a bit better than discounted in um, in equity prices. I've got my doubts, though, about whether the emerging markets are the right place to be. I think actually you want to have a portfolio more focused on, on the US economy at this particular stage. James, if I can come to you, would you agree with that? Yeah, to some extent. We're positive at Neptune about the emerging economies over the next five years. We think that they can grow even though we don't see much growth coming from Europe per se and less than usual coming from the United States. The question at the moment for for your listeners, for private investors, is which assets do you buy to tap into that growth? Actually, right now, the valuations are probably more favourable for um, companies in advanced markets that are tapped into the growth in the emerging markets. So that's where I'd advise investing today. Jerome, if we come to you, so emerging markets is such a broad description, isn't it? Where would you even begin? Well, um, emerging markets I define as countries where the risk is priced in, as opposed to developed countries where it's not. And frankly, one of the big motives for investing in emerging markets, fixed income, equities, private equity, uh, you know, currencies, whatever, um, it's not just equities, is to reduce risk. 
And we have to recognize that um, the deleveraging in Europe and the United States um, means that uh, these economies will be moribund and facing actually quite severe risk of, of bigger losses uh, for several years more. So the question really is, why? what are the other four-fifths of investors thinking when they're not thinking about putting more in emerging markets? And I have to say, you know, I, I really uh, find the prospect of investing in the United States and Europe uh, extremely risky. And um, this isn't just about valuations uh, in equity markets. This is about currency movements. It's about, um, you know, huge macroeconomic shifts, uh, the like of which we potentially have not seen since the 1930s. So, you know, I would very much encourage people to put much more and not just think just about equities. They've got to look at corporate debt. They've got to look at sovereign debt. They've got to look at money markets, which are, let's face it, much safer in currencies that might go up. Tim, there's been some huge news from Europe. So although the Eurozone has technically avoided a recession, there's still a lot of uh, trouble in the area. And I think that that's had a huge effect on emerging markets, hasn't it? The the idea Mm. of the two being separate is not right. Um, No, I mean, I think the problem from a short term and cyclical point of view, the problem that you have at the moment is that European policy, both fiscal and monetary, are misaligned, really, for the state of the economy. And, you know, hand on heart, I find it very difficult to build a case for a return to positive growth in Europe in the short term. Europe is the largest export market for a lot of for a lot of the emerging markets. And at the same time, um, China represents a bit of a problem. I'm very agnostic between the bear case and the bull case and the sort of neutral case in China. But the point is, you can make quite a lot of different cases for China, all with equal validity, it seems. I'd, I think, pragmatically, the Chinese may have made a bit of a policy mistake in that they're going into a period of quite weak uh, demand from their biggest customer, which is Europe, um, at a time when they haven't really done much about generating much internal demand. So it, I'm not a big bear of China or anything, but just there are you know, that whole emerging market sort of complex, which which at the end of the day does rest on either Chinese fortunes or on European fortunes. is oh, just sorry. a little bit suspect. I, I really have to sort of jump in there because, you know, frankly, I see China as a stabilising force in the global economy. Um, and it's not all about China. There are another 60 countries you can invest in. And it is 85% of the world's population. And they're all highly diverse. And I would say that China has every policy option ahead of it compared with Europe, which was run out of options, has almost nowhere to go. I mean, the risks from a macroeconomic point of view are much, much higher in Europe than in China. And um, actually, the equity market is also extremely cheap. Currency is undervalued. There are issues of timing, of course. But if you're thinking about longer term you know, allocation, I just think you know, people are... Uh, fooling themselves as they think that the risks in China are in any way equivalent to the risks in, in, the, in the developed world, or as, the, as I call them, the, the HIDICs, the heavily indebted developed countries. James, would you agree that China is central to any discussion about emerging markets? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a growth pole in emerging markets. Um, and I think there are two questions you need to ask about China today in, in, in that capacity. First of all, the sort of five-year, ten-year view you know, there's a lot of talk that China's slowing down, you know, in, in a structural way. And I think to a large extent, those views are being kind of pushed too hard. So the next five years, we're going to get less growth in China from pure workforce growth. But the other component of growth is labor productivity, which comes from two things. One, sectoral shift from agriculture into industry and services. And two, from labor productivity growth within a sector. And both of those sources still have quite a long way 
to run. So we, you know, we see growth coming down from you know ten percent structurally in China to maybe eight or something over the next five years. But that's still a very strong growth rate. And if you take into account that China is is, is a very large economy, you know, eight percent growth uh, of the Chinese economy today is contributing more to global growth than ten percent. Growth of the Chinese economy ten years ago, so it's still going to be a growth pull over the next five or ten years. But for private investors, it can be quite difficult to actually access that economic growth because that's not always reflected in equity growth within China itself. Yeah, that's absolutely right, and I think that's why you've got to you know think hard about how to, how to access that growth. It's not necessarily the case that you want to buy Chinese stocks.、Um, this is where I think valuations come in. Um, and it, it may be the case that you, there, are, there are companies in, in the U.S. and Europe and the U.K. that you can purchase that are, that are tapped into that growth. Tim, you said you were not sure about China. Are there any economies out there that you are very positive well, on? Well, yeah, I wouldn't go. I, I wouldn't go near Chinese assets with a barge pole. Actually, to be honest with you, because the rule of law is sadly lacking there. Governance is shocking,、um, but they've got a major issue with profit margins. I mean, the whole country's、uh, development so far has been built on this investment-led model. As we all know, they're moving towards trying to shift towards a consumption-led model.、Um, the economics behind that is that the、uh, factors of production, labour, and the cost of capital will both go up. That's an, an absolute inevitability. It has to happen if they're successfully going to move away from an investment-driven model to more of a balanced economy, a household, you know, consumption-driven economy.、Um, as that happens. Uh, Chinese profit margins go down. We're seeing that already,、um, and it will continue to happen. Now,、uh, over time, what you'll see is the application of new technology and so forth、uh, to to Chinese companies, and productivity, labour productivity, will exactly rise. And and you know you should see a restoration of those profits.、Um, but I think what <coughs> over that period, it's going to be quite painful,、uh, and you're not going to have a lot of profits.、So、I'd, I'd keep you know well away. From there, and also bear in mind what happens when now that the sort of the arbitrage of Western labour costs against Chinese labour costs, now that that's sort of in its closing stages, that's been a soporific on Western innovation and technological research. So the net effect I would expect to see over the next five years of China moving towards this more consumption-led model is a Chinese profits get crushed. B, you see、uh, R and D and innovation pick up very strongly、uh, in the West. So there's quite a case there for the developed markets as well, not just the emerging markets. Elsewhere, I'm I'm having trouble identifying a emerging market that that I think isn't you know at risk in some way or other. I would access the growth in their consumers, which I totally believe will happen through Western companies that service them. Um, those investments have probably been the most best performing, certainly in equity space. We've brought up this issue a couple of times about investing. Both my fellow guests here,、uh, uh, you know, investing in in you know Western companies,、um, and that may sound an attractive alternative for those people who are a little bit timid and don't actually want to take the plunge. Is that a psychological、uh, reticence? I wonder. But there is a. A risk in this, and that is that if you really do get the worst-case scenario, if you get depression as we got in the 1930s, then any company which has significant lines of business、uh, and is vulnerable because of that in the West actually is also at risk. And if one is investing in emerging markets partly to reduce risk, then one should go actually to the emerging markets. I mean, Lehman in the UK. Had six billion in cash when Lehman in in the U.S. blew up, and there were some articles at the time. Oh well, they're all right because they've got all this cash. And then, of course, there was a six billion transfer. 
Um, so what is the motive for investing in emerging markets? If it's just to have a punt, uh, then I'm afraid you're out of date because this is 85% of the world's population. It's the bulk of economic activity on the planet. It's fundamentally important to have assets in emerging markets if you want to meet your liabilities. What are your liabilities as a private investor? having the purchasing power in 20 years to buy cars and uh, and petrol and food, because a lot of these things will be priced in emerging markets, whether we like it or not. And um, you're not uh, uh, meeting that liability if one can, you know, continues to think of emerging markets as somehow marginal or, or peripheral, and one can best get access to it, you know, by actually doing the thing that we're more comfortable doing, which is buying General Motors or something. There's been a, a broadening of the definition of emerging markets beyond the, the BRICS, the Brazil, Russia, India, China. There's a lot of new terms around now. There's civets I was reading about. There's I, I have my 11. own, which is cement. What's Countries cement? in emerging markets excluded by new terminology. <laughs> and you need bricks and definition. cement. I mean, I, I don't like the phrase at all, bricks. I mean, my view is, well, why, why invest in four countries when you can invest in 64? James, how do you feel about the, the civets or the next 11 or the next 16? Are there any? Do you think the definitions are helpful to investors? I think overall... There has been an effect of um, focusing minds on the emerging world, which was very important, say, 15 years ago, because, uh, you know, investment and growth um, are two factors that, that feed off one another. So, you know, you, if you have a higher you know, FDI rate, companies are investing in emerging economies, they're transferring their knowledge and skills to emerging economies, and that's going to help them grow more. So I actually think that, you know, Good old Jim O'Neill has, has done has done has done the emerging economies a favour with his with with his with his bricks um, terminology. But um, you know, I I, I I think Jerome's right. You know, you've you've, you've got to think more broadly. Um, you've got to ask yourself the question: What is what's behind this extraordinary development in which um, we, we've seen such broad-based growth across across poor countries? Um, you know, our, our our take on this is that. Um, the, there's very you know, important historical politics behind this trend. It's not a spin-off of you know the debt-fueled Western consumer buying you know more uh, more goods from the emerging markets year on year um, prior to the financial crisis. It's to do with um, historic changes in the politics in emerging economies that occurred in the 80s and 90s. You know, and, and start of the 1990s, there were 80 autocracies in the world. Today, there are 20. You know, we've seen the formation of inclusive institutions whereby it's now impossible, it's, it's unacceptable if you're the leader of an emerging economy to not have your economy growing. That's unacceptable now. And, you know, the, these authoritarian leaders of the Middle Eastern countries are only the latest to find this out last year. So th this, is what, this is what's behind this. It's, it's a broad... Um, it's a broad thing, and it's and it's and it's incredibly important. I, I really agree with that. It's the end of the Cold War, basically. Mm. I mean, that's the most important event in emerging markets the last hundred years, I think. Tim, do you think that the growth can continue to outpace developed markets, or will there be a shift? Um, it's a good question. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about the BRICS is when you look at each of those four economies, um, they've all got some fairly major emerging macro problems, different to the ones you know we've had in Europe and. US. Um, but they do have their own problems. Um, I, I mean, I would have to assume that that GDP growth in economies that are still developing, you know, by and large is going to be stronger than in, in ones that are developed. Um, but I would stress that 
that there has been a build-up of internal imbalances in a lot of these economies. Um, and in in the long run, I do tend to believe that you know GDP growth is a, is is partly a product of demographics, which obviously favours um, the emerging world and doesn't favour the developed world. Um, but it's actually more uh, a function of, um, uh, of of productivity and specifically innovation. Um, and I'm afraid in that respect, you know, the emerging markets aren't favoured at all. They're mostly one-trick ponies. Um, and if the trick stops working, then you've got problems. But if the rising middle class continues to grow, <laughs> why will the trick stop working? Well, quite, if it continues to grow, but that presupposes growth. Economic growth. I mean, growth. how much of Brazilian rising middle class is based on you know, credit and, you know, rising leverage in the household sector. Much, much less than in Europe. Is that something that private investors should be worried much. about, do you think, the the debt held by middle-class consumers in emerging economies? Look, the debt to GDP in emerging markets is about 25%. In the developed world, it's about 250%. I mean, really, uh, you know, you look at macroeconomic variables and the emerging world it looks very healthy compared to the developed world. And it's the developed world where all the big potential bubbles are over the next uh, five and ten years. And, you know, personally, you know, if you include Ashmore stock, which I've got a bit of, uh, you know, I put 95% of my personal money in emerging markets. Why? Because I'm a macroeconomist, because I'm extremely conservative, I'm very prudent with my money, and B, and C, I'm just awake, you know, I mean, this is the point, you know, it's actual, you know, linking these arguments and, and getting rid of the psychology of, oh, well, let's, you know, think of it as peripheral. Um, so, you know, I think people, every country has risks, every country has challenges and problems. There's no country at all that doesn't have some imbalance or some, you know, challenge. Um, but I'd much rather have a, a portfolio of, of 30 of those best ones in, in you know, emerging markets than a bunch of countries in the Eurozone. James, do you agree that this should just be a fundamental part of a private investor's portfolio? Yes, it absolutely should be um, on the basis of look, where, is, where is the growth coming from in the world today? Where do we expect it to come from over the next 10 years? Um, are earnings, you know, uh, um, that... The, uh, for stocks linked to to economic growth, yes, they are. Um, it's it's a pretty. There are not many steps to that to that argument. Um, in, in, in investors should think should think globally. Tim, do you agree for private investors? I mean, I no, I'd love to. I'd love to agree, but as an economist, when I don't know what some of the most basic ratios are, I don't know what Chinese debt to GDP ratio is within fifty percent of GDP. I've seen very convincing numbers that argue all over the place. I don't know whether the company's accounts are, resemble what the company's actually doing. What I do know is that the story about the middle class consumer and the rising GDP per capita, as far as I can tell, over the last decade, one's been able to play that very successfully through firms quoted on Western stock markets subject to Western levels of transparency and the rest. And I'm, at the moment, you can see the best performing areas of all markets, including EM, have been the sort of the global consumer staple type stocks, plus things like Apple, which you wouldn't tend to include in that, but it has a massive exposure to EM. So I'm much happier investing in BMW on the basis they're going to sell loads of cars to the Brazilians or the Chinese than I am investing in the Chinese equivalent. Jeremy, take a slightly different Well, approach. I actually think the onus for the private investor is on justifying why they don't have uh, 50% of their portfolio in emerging markets and not the other way around. And, you know, I think investors need to ask themselves the basic question, are they prejudiced?
And if they are, to think rationally about where that comes from. And, you know, maybe they should change that because investing is driven by psychology. We all suffer from that. And we've got to fight that uh, if we're going to give our portfolio the best opportunities. I think there might be an interesting and a generational perspective on this where perhaps my generation, our formative years were in this era of globalization as opposed to the formative years of, say, the baby boomers who are leaving the, the markets now. Their formative years were in the 1960s with heavy capital controls. You know, their parents you know, fought in the Second World War. They're much more of a patriotic generation. I, I, think, that, I think that may be reflected as, as they're sort of under, uh, under 35s, under 30s, as they can increase their, you know, the, the amount of wealth that they have to invest in markets. I, I, think, I think that may be reflected over the next 10, 10, 20 years or so. So younger investors take a more global view on their investments? It's just speculation, but possibly. Tim, is that wise, do you think? Do you think younger investors um, can afford to take that view? Well, uh, yes, of course, they can always take more risk um, because they're younger. I mean, I, I just caution against looking on a country-by-country basis. I think that's, per- that's perhaps the piece of baggage that we should leave behind uh, and look at it on a company-by-company or an opportunity-by-opportunity you know, basis, rather than sort of saying there's, <clears throat> it's either or. So we have to do our research. That's all yeah. that we have time for. Thank you very much for coming in and speaking to us today. Tim Bond, James Dowie and Jerome Booth, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW.